In the United States, safety net hospitals provide essential care to patients regardless of their insurance coverage, their financial circumstances, or their immigration status. And they often operate on thin financial margins while assuming responsibility for critical but unprofitable services. But identifying which facilities qualify as safety net hospitals continues to be a challenge that carries important policy implications. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Paula Chatterjee, an Assistant Professor in the Division of General Internal Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Chatterjee has written a perspective article about safety net hospitals and the services they provide. Dr. Chatterjee, could you explain the concept of a safety net hospital in general? Where are they located? Whom do they serve? What role do they play in supporting public health? Absolutely. So typically, we can think about safety net hospitals from sort of a colloquial definition. Oftentimes, these hospitals, they can be large urban facilities. Many of them are academic medical centers. And we typically characterize them as facilities that provide a lot of care for patients who are uninsured, underinsured, or insured by the Medicaid program. Safety net hospitals can also be defined differently across different contexts. So, for example, in a lot of rural settings, we have what are called critical access hospitals, which are hospitals that have this type of safety net designation because they're often the sole provider for care for a large geographic area, often encompassing many rural communities. What the tricky thing is, is that oftentimes we think about safety net hospitals by a a know-it-when-we-see-it threshold, but obviously that makes it very difficult to target resources effectively and design focused policies if there really isn't a formal definition to define them. So have these facilities, however defined, taken on new responsibilities during the COVID-19 pandemic? In so many ways, the pandemic has really laid bare a lot of the challenges that have long existed in our healthcare system, and this is particularly true for safety net hospitals. Even before the pandemic, many of these hospitals operated under thin financial margins and provided a lot of uncompensated care. And particularly back in March, when many hospitals were required to shut down elective services and provide care solely for COVID patients, we know that hospitals broadly were disproportionately hurt from a financial standpoint. And it's likely that safety net hospitals also face these consequences, which may have meant more given their baseline financial constraints. We also know that many safety net hospitals disproportionately serve communities of color and low-income individuals who have been shown time and again with a robust and growing body of evidence showing that they're at higher risk for poor outcomes from the pandemic. And so really figuring out how best to support these hospitals has been an ongoing challenge really since the pandemic began in the spring. So going back to the issue of definition, as you say, there are a variety of hospitals that are considered safety net, but there's not really a uniform definition. Why do you think one has never been established and what problems are created by not having one? The value and contributions of safety net hospitals are so specific to their local context because they have to be. So much of the story is embedded in communities, which is maybe a partial explanation for why we don't have a formal definition. Obviously, it's important to understand how a hospital serves the specific communities that are surrounding it, but this, of course, creates a rather obvious policy challenge. How are we supposed to design broad population-based policies that serve low-income patients and communities of color when it becomes very hard to characterize them as a broad group? So you began to talk about the financial viability of safety net hospitals. Can you say more about that? How have they traditionally been funded? How has this hurdle that COVID-19 presents to financing been overcome, or has it been? So safety net hospitals care for low-income, uninsured, or underinsured patients, and this leads them to collect patient revenue that often falls short of operating costs. And so 
as a result of that, many safety net hospitals rely on really what sort of is a fragile patchwork of subsidies at the federal, state, and local levels to stay financially viable. However, these subsidies vary markedly in size and in stability, and they can change markedly over time across geography and in response to local budgetary pressures. And so this fragile patchwork of subsidies is perhaps dominated by one program in particular, which is called the Disproportionate Share Hospital Payment Program, or the DISH program, which is operated jointly through Medicare and the Medicaid program. So it's really a federal and state partnership that executes this program. However, the DISH program has existed since 1992, yet we don't have a lot of data on sort of where the DISH payments are going, how effectively they're being allocated, and sort of what the consequences for patient outcomes are, despite the fact that there are $12 billion in federal money that go to this program every year. So given all these challenges, you say in your article that policymakers should stop trying to define safety net hospitals per se and start defining safety net services. So what do you see counting as a safety net service and how would you see funding being allocated in that area? So right now, the way that we think about safety net hospitals is in this dichotomous approach. Hospitals either do or they don't serve as a safety net. But in reality, the story is just far more complicated than that. Hospitals support communities in a variety of different ways, and some do so more than others. And so one way to capture this could be to move away from this dichotomous approach and toward more of a continuum that is based on whether a hospital provides safety net services or functions. So for example, one function could focus on how much a hospital provides care for low-income patients. Another function could focus on how much a hospital invests in their communities by looking at their levels of community benefit spending. Another function could include how much a hospital provides costly but unprofitable care for patients, such as inpatient psychiatric care or trauma care. And so once we can characterize these functions, which, by the way, have been put forth by the federal government in a variety of different documents, we have suggestions for how to think about these functions. We could take these functions and then target the allocation of funding to support the service associated with these hospital functions. And ideally, that would better support the hospitals that are actually delivering care in ways that are meaningful to their communities and would allow for a more transparent approach to supporting safety net hospitals. So finally, and carrying on from that point, what other policies do you think should be considered to ensure that hospitals that provide these safety net services can do the most good for their communities? So I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in this territory from a policy standpoint. So one way is to really reevaluate and think about and learn more about the DISH payment program. This is, again, one of the largest subsidy programs available for safety net hospitals, and yet we know very little about how this money is allocated. One of the initial problems here is that the current data that are available to evaluate DISH payments are lagged by about five years. And so over $12 billion a year are spent on this program, but we still don't know what happened to it from 2016. And so resolving this data lag could be one opportunity to start to sort of better identify how to tailor policies to support these hospitals. I think there's also room for increased transparency in understanding how hospitals are financed, because this would give us a better idea of sort of how money is being used to support services. Right now, a lot of our financial data is linked to the Medicare program, which is, of course, a large program that many hospitals depend on, but there are many low-income patients who are not on the Medicare program, and so there's another data opportunity here. And then finally, the mechanics and the formulas of the DISH program were established in 1992, and they have yet to be revised. And so this represents another chance for us to sort of reconsider how the times have changed, demographics have changed, 
the state of poverty in the United States has changed over the past 30 years. And there's another chance here to sort of modernize our safety net system to build a more resilient system of care. Thank you, Dr. Chatterjee.